I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis chapter 17. And Pastor Dan, I do not have the remote to advance to the slides. Perhaps you could retrieve that for me. Or perhaps one upstairs could help me with that. Genesis 17 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of beginnings and specifically now the life of Abram or Abraham, the biography of the great patriarch of the faith, Abram. A scientist once took the cocoon of a monarch butterfly and kept it in his study for months hoping to witness its emergence in due time. The cocoon was flask-shaped with a narrow opening at the neck through which the butterfly would emerge. But the great difference between the narrow opening and the size of the butterfly made the scientist wonder how the insect would ever get out of his natural prison. At last the day came and all the morning long the man watched the insect as it struggled to free itself from the cocoon But it never seemed to get beyond a certain point. His patience exhausted and his pity excited, he decided to help the butterfly along. With the point of his scissors, he carefully snipped the confining threads to make the exit just a little easier to pass through. And at once, the butterfly crawled out with perfect ease. But then the man watched in vain to see the gorgeous wings expand and fill. They never did. You see, the struggle to emerge is what forces fluids into the butterfly's wings and makes it possible to fly. And the man's impatience and the man's false kindness ruined the butterfly. The butterfly never became all that it was meant to be, but rather spent its brief life crawling painfully when it should have been flying through the air on rainbow wings. Abram and Sarah are like the scientists. They were impatient. They were impatient with the promise of God. God had promised them a son, but it had been so long. They had waited so long for God's promise of a son, so in their impatience, they took matters into their own hands to help the work of God get accomplished with greater convenience to them. But when they did that, when trying to do God's work their way, they caused great harm. Abram and Sarah are like the the scientist. Abram and Sarah are also like the butterfly, you see. They needed time to struggle. Abram and Sarah needed time to wait by faith for God's timing so that they could fully develop into what God wanted them to be. And folks, this morning as we begin our study together, I might restate the message of our study last week. It's always a mistake to hurry the work of God. For the work of God may in fact be doing a work in us, allowing us time to struggle, teaching us to wait by faith so that we might emerge as the mature creation that he has, he's called us to be. James chapter 1 The testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born to Hagar. Abram was 99 years old when Isaac was born to Sarah. A period of 
13 years was to pass in which Abram had to learn all over again to wait for God. And folks, it was a struggle. It was a painful exercise in patience. And so from Genesis 17 this morning, I've prepared a message titled Abram and the Painful Patience of Faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we we study the scripture. God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. All that we have is, is Christ. He is our only hope in life and death. And we're thankful for the redemption we have through his death and shed blood on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. God, I pray that you would strengthen us this morning by a review of those truths. And now as we turn our attention to the life of Abram and Sarah, I pray that you would teach us patience as we wait, trusting your promises. And as lonely as it may be, as painful as it may be, Lord, give us the faith to walk in patience, trusting your promises. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at Genesis 17, verse number one. The Bible says when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Once again here now, God is repeating his promises to Abram in these verses. And this is a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant that we learned of in chapter 12, in chapter 13, in chapter 15, and again now in chapter 17. And during each episode of Abram's life, God spoke to Abram. In chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, In chapter 13, and the Lord said to Abram, chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, and now in chapter 17, verse number one, the Bible says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. And folks, this is a gift that God is giving to Abram for for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, And so God is rehearsing and reviewing and repeating his promises to Abram to strengthen his faith. And I would say to you this morning, when you are having a crisis of faith, you need to hear what God has said. You need to hear it again and again and again. You need to reread and review and repeat and rehearse the word of God. What has God said? I would offer you number one in the notes I've prepared, rehearse the promises of God. Now, depending on how you count, there are more than 7,000 promises made by God to man in, in the Bible. In fact, one man has actually published a book titled All the Promises of the Bible, citing 7,147 promises. Now, obviously, many of those promises were made to specific people or groups of people at a, at a designated time in history, but many of those promises transcend any specific person or place, and there are more than enough promises that you can claim for every day of this year. Furthermore, as you rehearse the promises of God and you claim the promises of God, note that God's promises are always linked to God's person. 
There are three names for God here in these early verses. Find them with me. Find them. Verse number one, Genesis 17, verse number one, the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh is the Hebrew name there. The Lord appeared unto Abram. Jehovah or Yahweh, it's it's the the covenant name for God that means self-existing one. There's another name for God in verse number one. Find it there. He spoke to Abram as the almighty God. That's El Shaddai. El Shaddai, it means almighty God. It's the second name. There's a third. It says that God, in verse number three, now look at verse three. God talked with Abram. That's the name Elohim. Elohim is the creator and the sustainer of all that is. And if we connect the promises of God to the person of God, we can respond as Abram did in this passage. How did Abram respond? He was on his face in verse number three. He was quiet. He listened to God's voice, to God's word. For every word that is spoken um, from verse number four through verse 16, if you're looking at the text there, all of those words, all of those verses are spoken by God. There was no need for Abram to dialogue. There was no talking back. Consider what God said, the substance of the promise, letter A. The substance of the promise first, the nature of the promise. And the covenant that God made with Abram was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. You remember back in Genesis 15 when God cut various animals in two and then he passed through those animals as the initiator and the, the holder of the covenant promises. Abram did not pass through in in that ceremony with God for Abram was asleep. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. In contrast, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant, a, a bilateral covenant. God told Israel, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you don't obey, I I won't bless you. There'll be judgment for your generation. And they agreed and accepted those terms. However, in this chapter, there are 24 absolute, unconditional statements using the words, God using the words, I will, you shall. All the initiative, all of the intent and insistence is God's. That's the nature of this promise that God is repeating again for Abram now in chapter 17. The nature of the promise. Consider also the people of the promise. Secondly, the, the people of the promise. And, and I, I would point you to verses four through six. Verse four, as for me, God is speaking, behold, my covenant is with you, Abram, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make the nations Nations of you and kings shall come from you. Here at this point, God is changing Abram's name to Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham means exalted father of many nations. And the people of this covenant promise is to Abram and his descendants through Isaac, we'll discover, not through Ishmael. A third part of the promise is the duration of the promise in verse number seven. The duration of the promise, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now somebody tell me from verse number seven, what does everlasting mean? Everlasting means everlasting. God is not through with Israel yet. 
The church has not replaced Israel. And although, pro- although all of the promises to Israel have not yet been fulfilled, they will be fulfilled as God has promised. Now, later, God would issue the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant and the, the New Covenant, but none of those additional covenants change the provisions of this everlasting covenant with Abram, Abraham and his his descendants. That's the duration of it. And finally, there's the location of the promise. The location, verse number eight. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an ever, again, the duration, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The location of the promise is the land of Canaan. The duration is everlasting forever. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about international politics. I don't know everything there is to know about the geography of the Middle East, but as a Bible student who reads the Bible, I would submit to you that the land does not belong to the Palestinians or the Arabs or the United Nations, you see. The land was gifted to Abraham and to the nation of of Israel. That's the location of the promise, the substance of this this promise. And we're familiar with this because we spent the last many weeks rehearsing it over and over and over again. But secondly, there's a sign or a symbol of the promise. That's letter B, the sign or the symbol of the promise. And I need to continue reading beginning in verse number nine. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my, my covenant. The sign or the symbol of, of the promise is this physical sign of circumcision. It was a physical, visible sign for those in the covenant community. But it wasn't just a physical sign. It was also a spiritual symbol. And you see, there was to be a new covenant someday. Of course, we're familiar with this today. That new covenant is that which came through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is the new covenant of my blood. In fact, we even reflected on that this morning. Jeremiah 31 explains that the new covenant would be different and that God would write his law on the heart of man, not on tablets of stone, as in the Mosaic covenant, that God would circumcise the heart. Jeremiah 4, verse number 4. And even in, back in the book of Deuteronomy, God explained that he wanted to circumcise the heart. So the circumcision is symbolic. It's a spiritual symbol. It didn't automatically make one a child of God. Paul proved that true in Romans chapters 2 through 4 when he explained that uh, it's, it's uh, not physical circumcision that makes one ultimately a child of Abraham. And then, of course, the book of Galatians, as Paul wrote to the Galatians church, it's futilely spiritually futile to trust in circumcision and not um, regeneration as God has granted. But it was an expression of faith 
and obedience on the parts of the parents and the people. It was a reminder of God's covenant with Abram um, and his, his descendants. If one was uncircumcised, it was considered rebellion against God. And that one was to be cut off from, from his people. But then there's also the, the specificity of the promise. As God is laying this out to Abraham for an additional time, Verses 15 and 16, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. The specificity of the covenant promise, the Abrahamic covenant, is that the promise would come through, specifically through Sarah. In other words, Abraham, no more Hagar's. Sarah is the one. And her name was changed, just as Abraham's name was changed. However, the significance, the full significance of Sarah's name change is, is uh, a little bit lost on us. It's a bit vague. The, the common explanation is that Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means just princess. So perhaps the idea is that Sarah was not Abram's alone, but the whole nation. But nonetheless, the specificity of the promise was through Sarah. And so we rehearse the promises of God. We review and repeat and restate and recount the promises of God, as Abram was able to do in this case. But but then what? After this information uh, overload, after this information download, then what? And this is number two, believe. Believe the promises of God. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah who is 90 years old bear a child? Abraham laughed at God's promise. Now, let's be careful to discern the nature of this laughter, the laughter of faith, we're calling it this morning. There are different types of laughter. There is humorous laughter, and that's medicine to the soul. I like to laugh, you like to laugh, I need to laugh. In our home, I often tell jokes uh, dad jokes they are, and I laugh at the, those jokes. My, my family, they roll their eyes at those jokes, but that makes me just even laugh more and more, right? I, I'm so gratified that they would roll their eyes at my dad jokes. There's, there's humorous laughter, and we, we need to laugh. There's, there's a different type of laughter. There's hideous laughter. Hideous laughter is the, the foolish crackle of one who laughs at sin, or who mocks the misfortune of another, the hideous laughter. Then there's what I'm calling here the laughter of faith. And I would submit to you that what we read of here in verse number 17 is the laughter of faith. I think that Abraham is laughing out of sheer joy at the incredible possibility of it all. How how do I know that this might be the laughter of faith, the the spirit of Abraham's laughter here? Well, in Romans chapter four, Paul says this of Abraham. 
Romans 4, verses 19 and 20. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. We just read that in verse 17. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, we just read that in verse 17. She was 90. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Folks, I would submit to you that Abraham's laughter in verse 17 is the laughter of faith. It's different than Sarah's laughter in the next chapter. We'll come to that in in due time. But I think Abram's laughter was one of relief, perhaps mingled with tears. For after 13 years of silence, from the time that Ishmael was born to Hagar, he now could not contain his joy. And he laughs. I'll offer you this this illustration. John Bunyan, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, not to be confused with Paul Bunyan, the, the one of Minnesota legend and lore, but John Bunyan, the Puritan, he was a man who knew how to transform gloom into gladness. And in his own Puritan way, John Bunyan tells of the long days when he lay under terrible conviction of sin. He says, I lay long at Sinai, he said, and, and saw the fire and the cloud and the darkness. He meant, of course, that he was, he was living under the burden of the law. The law was given at Mount Sinai, and that conviction of sin under the law, he was long troubled by his utter inability to produce anything pleasing to God. But then came deliverance when his soul was set free and the vision of Sinai, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law was replaced by a view of Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. And this is what he said. He said, and with all the 12th chapter of Hebrews was set before my eyes. This was a good night for me. I had few better. I could scarce lie in my bed for joy and peace and triumph. And John Bunyan was like Abraham in this moment when the reality of all of God's promise fully impacted his understanding. It's true. It's it's real. I can't believe it, but I do believe it. I'm so excited. I'll laugh and celebrate with joy. Verse 17 says that Abram fell on his face and laughed. The laughter of, of faith. Look at verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What? This is what I'll say is the logic of faith. The logic of faith, and and faith reasons in this way. If God can bless me, he can bless other people. And, And so Abraham here is pleading for Ishmael to be brought into or included in the sphere of God's blessing. And although Ishmael would not and could not be included in the covenant promises given to Abraham and Isaac, God did promise material prosperity for Ishmael. Look at verses 19 and following. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. That's the specificity of the promise we talked about. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and, he will, mul- and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 pr- princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next 
year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And so there's the, the, the logic of faith, but here's the problem with the logic of faith. Faith is not logical, folks. And what is theological is not always logical. And so be careful in your journey to not impose your common sense, your street sense, your conventional wisdom, or your human logic upon God's purpose. There's the, the logic of faith. But then finally, the, let us see the, the, the life of faith. The life of faith is a life of obedience to the will of God. Now, I know your notes are complete, but don't put your things away just yet. I, I want to conclude by, by reading the balance here of, of the scripture text, verse 23. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house, bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. His Bible commentator, John Phillips, who identified four aspects of Abraham's obedience here regarding this circumcision. It it really illustrates how comprehensive Abraham's obedience was in believing the promises of God and then responding by faith. There was parental obedience in verse 23. Abraham had Ishmael circumcised, just 13 years old. There was patriarchal obedience in verse 23. Abraham had all that were born in his household circumcised. It extended to everyone there. Then in uh, verse 23, there was positional obedience. A- Abraham um, circumcised all who were bought with his money, uh, slaves or servants or, or whatnot. Abraham didn't exclude them. And then there was personal obedience in verse 24, Abraham himself at age 99. But you read through this and, and you think, really? Was that necessary? What did it accomplish? Have you ever felt like that regarding a point of obedience to God? It seems like such an arbitrary matter. And our natural response when given commands by authority, whether it's God or our parents or a coach or a boss, or why do I have to do that? What difference does that make? What's the big deal about circumcision? Did it change anything? In this case, circumcision did nothing to change the rebellion of man. Consider this about Ishmael. In verse 25, Ishmael was circumcised. But it, did it change his attitude about God at all? The book of Galatians makes it clear that circumcision is of no benefit to our salvation or our sanctification. It did nothing to change the rebellion of man. It did nothing to change the righteousness of man. Consider this. Abraham was counted righteous long before he was circumcised. We know that chronologically as we've been working through the, the, the book of Genesis. Genesis 15, verse 16, verse 6 is when Abraham was counted righteous. The book of Romans tells us that as well. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So circumcision uh, did nothing to change the rebellion of man or the righteousness of man. So why, Lord? Why do we do this thing? Abram might say. 
The issue in all of this was obedience. Abraham did what God had commanded him. And folks, many times obedience demands painful patience. Think about an area of your life right now in which you are waiting for God to answer your prayer. It's been a long time, and you are impatient. Maybe regarding a spouse, maybe regarding a child, maybe regarding a job or a job promotion, maybe a a reconciliation. And your waiting is painful. And you are exhausted. And you are beginning to doubt the promises of God. Think about an area of your life in, in which your obedience is painful. Perhaps God would have you give in some way. Perhaps God would have you forgive in some way. And it's easier to give than forgive. It's easy to give. Forgive. That obedience is hard and that's painful. But God gives us specific instructions regarding so many things in life and we are called to simply trust and obey all the way while waiting. Remember how we began this morning from the book of James 1? The testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is God's way. So that like that monarch butterfly, the agony or the suffering or the pain of patience can force you to spread your rings and be all that God would have us to be according to his promise. Let's pray. God,